The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Health and Wellness Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericahealth.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Good afternoon and welcome to One Hour at a Time. Recovery begins with education and host Mary Woods is here to educate individuals and families and provide support through the recovery process. Now here's your host, Mary Woods. Welcome everyone to One Hour at a Time. This is your host, Mary Woods, and our topic today is going to be post-traumatic stress disorder and addictive disorders, and we're going to be talking about integrative cognitive behavioral therapy with our guest. And let me introduce our guest, and then we'll talk a little bit about our show. Our guest is Andrea Meyer, who is on the faculty of the Department of Psychiatry at Dartmouth Medical School in Lebanon, New Hampshire. She has an extensive clinical background as a duly licensed addiction and mental health clinician in Vermont. In the past, she has served as clinical supervisor of a co-occurring adolescent treatment program in Burlington, Vermont. Her current research and training interests are in developing the evidence base for integrative psychosocial therapies and understanding effective approaches to clinician training and clinical supervision. She is working with Dr. Mark McGovern in the Addiction Health Services Research Section of the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center. Her current projects are funded by the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and the topics include addiction, post-traumatic stress disorder, and integrated treatment within the community and veteran affairs, behavioral health care centers. Um, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me, Mary. Um, as we talked about in our show description, um, which is a pretty astounding um, percentage, but 50% of people entering addiction treatment services have a co-occurring post-traumatic stress disorder and um, they are at probably an increased risk for negative outcomes and relapse. And that, to me, is a staggering um, number. It is. It is. Yeah, when you look at, when you look at the, the stats, it's about 25% of folks entering mental health services come in with a, a diagnosis of PTSD. And when you look at the, the statistics for addiction treatment, it's more in the 25 to 75% range. So we generally think it's around 50%. And, and that's specifically PTSD, the diagnosis. That's not even talking about simply trauma-related uh, experiences people may have had. Um, well, I guess what, what's the difference between somebody who has a trauma-related experience and mm-hmm. somebody who has um, a diagnosis of PTSD? Because um, aren't they both affected by the trauma? Oh, absolutely, and I think I think that's a good distinction to make, though, and I think a lot of folks may be uh, confused and, and use that interchangeably as far as someone has trauma and someone has PTSD. Uh, trauma is pretty ubiquitous when you look across the population. About 9 out of 10 folks or 90% of the general population will have experienced some sort of trauma in their lives. However, only about 25% will meet dsm 4 criteria for an actual PTSD diagnosis. And when you look at the, the dsm uh, 4 we're talking about four actual uh, set of criterion. So somebody has to have actually been exposed to a traumatic event, and that may be something like uh, some sort of sexual assault, physical assault, tragic accident, uh, some sort of uh, life-threatening illness or injury, something along those lines. 
um, and, and it's pretty clear as far as the, the diagnosis criteria for that. Um, I think folks tend to think of more of combat or, or war as a traumatic experience, but there's really a whole host of, of experiences people may have had in their lives. Um, and then so if somebody has had some, some level of traumatic victimization, then there's other clusters of symptoms that somebody would need to meet uh, in order to have the PTSD diagnosis. And that includes uh, clusters around re-experiencing symptoms. So someone may have recurrent intrusive recollections of the event, uh, distressing dreams, reliving uh, physiological reactivity to cues, those kinds of, kinds of things. Um, and then another, uh, what we call the C symptoms, would be uh, avoidance. And that's kind of the hallmark of folks with PTSD, excuse me, is, is avoiding thoughts, feelings, and conversations people, places, and things, um, detachment and estrangement from other people, sense of foreshortened future, and so on. Um, and it's also a reason why a lot of folks with PTSD don't get into services uh, because they're avoiding, they don't want to talk about it uh, necessarily or may have some apprehension about talking about events that have happened in their lives. Um, and, and the, the last cluster of symptoms when we're thinking about a diagnosis of PTSD would be uh, the symptoms about increased arousal or hypervigilance. So this is the, the difficulty falling or staying asleep, uh, outbursts of anger, difficulty concentrating, or the, the hallmark kind of ex exaggerated startle response when you think about uh, somebody, you know, maybe a, a, a war veteran coming back and hearing the backfire of a, of a car and, and going to the ground for shelter. Uh, so, so really there is, there is a pretty clear distinction when we're talking about trauma and, and PTSD, and when we're doing our research, we're specifically talking about folks that meet that criterion. Are there protective and risk factors for people who are exposed to trauma? You know, there are thoughts around that. There's not a lot of clear evidence about what it is that, that protects folks. Like I said earlier, about 90% of People walking around in the community have had some level of exposure to a traumatic event. However, maybe one in four will actually develop PTSD. So there's thought that there's some sort of protective factor, whether that's you know environmental uh, supports uh, and and other just resiliency factors that are inherent to people. Um, you know, when, when we're thinking about. Um trauma and, and exposure to trauma, it seems like for, um, you know, for a lot of people who have some type of a substance use disorder, a large percent of them come from a family that has a history of substance abuse or, mm -hmm. or dependence. And it seems to me like just the nature of being uh, a child in an alcoholic home, you're exposed to a certain amount of emotional or physical trauma. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so are they more at risk because of the environmental exposure, or, or does something happen on a on a cellular cellular level in the brain? You know, and 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 I think there's not a, a a magic button we can we can push and say this is the this is the direct course. I think there's a lot of factors. I think folks that are coming up in a in a growing up in a chaotic in, environment, whether it's it's alcoholism or domestic abuse or you know substance use or or um, being, you know, molested by, by a, a neighbor or a family friend, I think um, it, it, part of it has to do with the human nature of, of, of uh, resiliency um, and other uh, factors that, again, there's not a clear link um, 
for that necessarily. Do we know what happens on the on the like on the basic cellular level when somebody does have PTSD? If we do a, a scan, can we see fundamental brain changes, or is it like at a microscopic level that we can't see? You know, and that's something I, I can't necessarily speak to. Um, I, I'm sure there is. I'm not as well versed in that area. My background is is mainly in the clinical realm of, uh, you know, my background is being a clinician. And for this project, it's more about helping to train and supervise, cl- supervise clinicians that are involved in, in some of this new treatment that we're developing. Well, in the old days, when I first entered the profession, it was thought that if somebody did have a history of PTSD, that we didn't go toward the trauma, yes. that it was important for somebody to get sober first because if yes. they began to work on um, the trauma too early, they would relapse. And yes. um, that was kind of the, the gold standard. Yeah, and, and, and that, that has been the history, I think, about the field is it's, it's sort of more of a sequential flow of treatment where, I, you know, there's even some textbooks out there that, that have published, you know, you, you, people have to work on their sobriety and be two years sober before you touch the trauma and PTSD uh, symptoms. And really that's shifted over the past several years, and there's been more attention and clinical interest in developing more tools for therapists to be able to use to address both concurrent currently what we call more integrated services. So folks um, in the same treatment setting are able to do both the mental health or PTSD work as well as the addiction work. And really there's been more and more funding too from by the government to support projects like that. Um, And, you know, there's been... There, there hasn't been a whole lot of attention, and really about about 50% of the interventions that have been put out there have sort of fizzled over time and, and haven't kept up much momentum. There's a couple that have still uh, still had some attention and momentum, and, and one would be uh, Seeking Safety, and another is called COPE, uh, which is, uh, let me get this straight here, it's a co-occurring PTSD and substance use disorder treatment with uh, prolonged exposure that was put out by some folks at the University of South Carolina and, and seeking safety is uh, Lisa Najovitz. Um, however, there hasn't been a lot, there hasn't been much attention to control trials of, of comparing uh, the treatment. A lot of it has been focused more around uh, women. Um, it's been used with clinicians that are more uh, research-oriented or experts, if you will, and when it's been put up to control groups, especially for seeking safety, it hasn't fared better than uh, relapse prevention or, or, or a woman's group. Um, and when you think about the cope with the, with the prolonged exposure, um, there's, although there's literature that su- supports that exposure therapy is maybe more efficacious, uh, unfortunately about 75% of folks uh, in exposure therapy will drop out. Um, so only about 25% will complete and get a dose of, of that type of therapy. Um, Could you so explain to our audience what you mean by exposure therapy? Sure. Exposure therapy is, is when sort of in vivo or, or imaginal or, or real-life uh, re-exposure to situations that trigger uh, somebody's trauma. So um, an example of that might be a... Let me do a sort of a simplified example, I guess. Somebody that is fearful of going to a group with men because of a past uh, victimization maybe goes to an AA group and sort of desensitizes over time that exposure. 
um, or more specifically around trauma, it might be somebody in a therapy office re-remembering the details of a traumatic event. So um, maybe it's a molest, you know, being sexually abused or physically abused or or, or whatnot, um, and reliving that and exposing. And, and the hope is over time that sort of hypervigilance or increased arousal is uh, is, is reduced. One minute. Almost like in treating somebody who has extreme anxiety, like stage fright. Yeah. That that if you expose someone to them, um, it starts to demystify mm-hmm. the event, and it, and it helps people gain some self-efficacy around coping. Right. Right. And I think, you know, part of the concern, though, is that, again, there's a, there's a really high dropout rate, so there's something to be said about clients' interest in sort of readiness for an exposure-based therapy, um, and, and we've had some feedback about that, and also clinician uh, sort of apprehension, if you will, uh, about engaging in, in exposure-based therapy, feeling like they don't have the skills or, or uh, confidence that that's the best path to go. And we'll be right back after this message to talk more with Andrea Meyer about integrated cognitive behavioral therapy for folks who have co-occurring post-traumatic stress disorder and substance use disorders. Opinions, options, answers. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence based practices, consensus practices, and old fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. What would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts this award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world tune in every thursday at 8 a.m pacific for the dr pat show with dr pat basili radio to thrive by your life your health your network you're listening to voice america health and wellness You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone. This is Mary Woods, and our guest today is Andrea Meyer, who is on the faculty of the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center, and she is also on the faculty of the Department of Psychiatry at Dartmouth Medical School in Lebanon, New Hampshire. And Andrea's had extensive work 
um, in CBT, which is kind of behavioral therapy, and working with folks who have post-traumatic stress disorder and substance use disorders. And we were talking in our first segment just generally about PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder in general and how that differs from a traumatic event or somebody who's been exposed to trauma. Um, and before going to break, we were talking about um, how we determine, in some cases, what's the most effective treatment for someone. And I know, um, as I said in the old days when I first entered mm-hmm. the profession, you know, people would sit around and, and they would they would continually share their story of, of the trauma, whether it was it was usually in a mixed group, so there may be women talking about rape or or then we got to the point where we, we segregated the men from the women. And that, so people who had sexual trauma were in one group, and people who were experiencing other types of trauma, like Vietnam vets or whatever, were in a different group. And, and the idea of, of, it, of having to tell that story over and over again, I remember some of us sitting around and saying, aren't we just re-traumatizing people mm-hmm. by having them continually repeat and relive the experience? Yeah. And is there any research on that or a thought? Well, again, I mean, you have to you have to think about when we were talking uh, before the break about exposure therapy. That's you know pretty much what they're doing as far as uh, having folks relive it and relive it and relive it with the hopes that some of the the symptoms uh, decrease over time for from exposure. Um, but when you when you see that only twenty five percent of folks will complete, I think there is this. Uh, fear by clinicians and by the clients that it's not the best fit. Um, And and that's what we're seeing um, with some of the research that we're doing and that clinicians and clients alike are more interested in skill-based therapy. Uh, So building skills to help cope with some of the symptoms that are surrounding surrounding some of the traumatic events that they've they've had in their lives um, as well as around the addiction that may be uh, playing a part with that. Um, so for folks in our audience who may not be familiar with um, the, the nuts and bolts of cognitive behavioral therapy, could you explain to them what cognitive mm-hmm. behavioral therapy is and why sure. it's effective? Sure. Very, very basically, when you think about cognitive behavioral therapy, it's, it's a pretty, um, it's a pretty basic uh, theory around around therapy and counseling, and it's meant to target folks, uh, clients, what we call uh, distorted thinking or thinking errors. Um, for our project here, we're calling them common styles of thinking because you know we all do them, um, and helping folks become more aware that this is a pattern for them. So, uh, and and what some of the consequences might be um, from their thinking. So uh, we usually have certain emotions or behaviors that come along with that. And I'll give you a little uh, scenario, I guess, based on some of the some of the work that we're doing. We are thinking about cognitive behavioral therapy, and we're, we're part of one of the skills we go over with clients is something called flexible thinking, um, and it's really meant to be cognitive restructuring, which is uh, fundamental to CBT. Flexible thinking in, in our model here, in our manual that we've we've developed, is looking at what we call the A B's C's D's and E's of of an event, uh, and so an A would be what we call uh, an activating event. So something happens that activates the B. The B, B is the belief. Uh, so what is our thinking around this belief? What is the meaning that we, or excuse me, around this uh, situation? What is the meaning that we give it? C would be the consequence or 
the emotions or the behaviors that that B stirs up, so that thinking stirs up. Uh, and then D is when we do some disputing, uh, and that's really the hallmark of CBT is disputing some uh, uh, dysfunctional or not helpful beliefs, if you will, and E is coming up with entirely new meaning. So if I can, I'll just walk you through an example of that, uh, and that might help folks. So A, an, an activating situation might be somebody's, you know, you're driving down, down the highway or the road and somebody cuts you off. So that's an ac- activating situation. You slam on your brakes. The B uh, belief would be, you know, that, that, guy's, that, that guy's kind of a jerk or, uh, you know, he, he's out to get me or, you know, he's, he's, he's trying to, to, you know, cut me off and, and, and do all this stuff to me. Uh, and, and the C, the, the consequence of, of that thinking uh, for emotion might be I get angry, I get mad, um, I, I feel like I want to retaliate. Um, and the behavior might be that I speed up and I tailgate him um, or I, you know, try to zip around him and cut him off. Um, and then when we get to the D, which is really the, the, the piece of the flexible thinking, we start looking at, at that belief. We start looking at whether that's working for us. Um, we have what we call common styles of thinking, and again, some other folks maybe have looked at that as as thinking errors or distorted thinking. Um, but you know, what are some patterns we're seeing? For this example, it might be I'm doing some personalizing, right? I'm making the situation about me. Um, this guy's out to get me, um, and and as a result of that, um, you know, we need to look at some of the evidence. What, what's the evidence that that's that's exactly what happened, and that's that's why. Um, this guy cut me off, and you know maybe maybe I'm 20% certain that that's the case. But there's 80% that you know maybe, maybe there's something else going on here. Maybe you know maybe his wife's in labor. Maybe one of his kids are sick. Maybe he's late for work and he's in jeopardy of getting fired. Um, so that's when we start uh, evaluating some of the evidence for that belief and and uh, some of the common styles that may be going on there. And then E, so the A, B, C, D, E's, E would be an entirely new scenario. So, again, if I'm thinking, well, you know, he, maybe he's in a hurry, something tragic's happened, he's trying to get someplace, probably my, my C, my, my consequences are going to shift. I probably won't be angry. I, I, I probably won't be, won't be tailgating him and, and trying to get back at him. And I may kind of, huh, as he, as he goes by and keeps going, but uh, not rush to some rash uh, decisions that might put me in jeopardy or other people on the, in the, on the road in jeopardy. So that's just the, um, when you're asking about CBT, that's one way that we're looking at it in the new uh, treatment that we've developed to look at PTSD and, and addiction is uh, the, what we call flexible thinking. And again, the hallmark of CBT is really helping folks look at their thinking um, and, and their beliefs and, and testing the, the evidence for it to see if, if they can come up with some new meaning that might change their emotions and behaviors over time. And I think the important thing too behind this is that if we can, if we change our thoughts, we can often change our feelings. Absolutely, and that's that's the piece. That's the connection. There is is really you know it, it's the it's it's looking at that thinking to have some control over our emotions and our behaviors. And when we think about integrated treatment, really one of those core behaviors uh, or consequences that we're thinking about is addiction, is, is substance use, and how some of those beliefs around situations are triggering us or, or, or uh, enhancing the likelihood that we're going to use to help cope with those feelings and behaviors. 
or that when people do use, they're more susceptible to the triggers and the thoughts that then right. make the trauma um, more pervasive in their life. Absolutely, absolutely. It kind of lowers their threshold to cope. Mm-hmm. Right, and we tend to see that. You know, we tend to see, um, you know, what we, we did a stage one of, of, of our research looking at integrated cognitive behavioral therapy um, funded by, by NIDA, the National Institute on Drug Abuse, and on average, with the folks that uh, we assessed and, and worked with, on average, they had about five traumas um, over over their lifetime, and, and really it was in the range of one to nine, but on average there was five, and the most common sequence uh, that we saw was, you know, usually there was some, usually childhood sexual assault that occurred, and then in early adolescence, uh, patients would begin to experiment with drugs and alcohol and feel some sort of relief of their symptoms from that, and then over time develop an abuse or dependency to substances, uh, which would later in life lead to more traumatic victimization and more substance use. So that's been the the general sequence or course that we've seen for the folks that we've we've worked with thus far. And again, with that stage one, we we worked with about 53 uh, patients. And for this newer project, what we call as a stage two, we've we've recruited 115. So um, one of the other techniques that you had uh, talked about was mindful relaxation. Mm-hmm. What is that? There's a, you know, there's a lot of different uh, tools, I think, out there for mindful relaxation, and it's really has some strong evidence, not only in addiction, but in mental health services, and I think most uh, treatment settings these days are using some form, and whether it's a breathing exercise or centering or, or deep muscle relaxation, visualization, uh, there, there's lots of different tools out there, but one of, so that's another skill we're, we're working with folks that are going through integrated cognitive behavioral therapy is mindful relaxation. For the, the specific one we're doing in our treatment, it's based around a centering technique, so helping clients become centered to the room and grounded, and then walked through a breathing exercise. We chose something that's meant to be simple um, for, for, for clinicians, so community clinicians, to be able to uh, work with clients on, and for clients that may not have had other exposure to mindful relaxation to be able to practice. Um, a lot of what we're doing with CBT in general, and this is, you know, kind of a, a, a big part of CBT and what we're doing is homework or the idea of real-life practice. So we want people to be able to practice over time, uh, kind of the analogy, I guess, of a, of a fire drill, right? If you, if you practice ahead of time when you really need it, when you're in a state of stress and, 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 uh, and, and need a skill, that it's right there for you. How experienced does a clinician have to be to do this? I mean... That is a great question and, and something that our team here feels, feels really passionately about is thinking about working with community clinicians. A lot of the treatments out there have word used experts or, or research therapists, but um, really what's going to be most sustainable is to be able to train uh, clinicians in the community to be able to do this. So the projects that we've worked on so far, we trained 14 clinicians with the Stage 1 trial, and more recently we have over 20 clinicians, excuse me, clinicians um, in the Stage 2 that have been trained. And when we look at what we call adherence and competency to the manual, uh, it's, it's excellent. Um, clinicians are able to implement, are able to, to deliver to their clients, and have had some pretty uh, astonishing outcomes that the folks are serving. And we'll be right back to talk a little bit more about the outcomes with Andrea after this commercial break. 
Step into a healthier you. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Entrepreneurial Insights is your weekly excursion into the world of business ownership. Presented by Sunbelt Business Brokers, the leading business brokerage and intermediary firm in the world, Entrepreneurial Insights will examine critical issues that impact both existing and prospective business owners. If you own or want to own a small business, listen for Entrepreneurial Insights with John Davies, Pino Boccianello, and Matt Ottaway. Fridays at 2 p.m. Eastern Time, 11 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Your life, your health, your network. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guests, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, to One Hour at a Time. This is Mary Woods. I'm your host today, and our guest is Andrea Meyer from the Dartmouth Medical School. She is on the faculty at the Department of Psychiatry, and she also works with Dr. Mark McGovern in the Addiction Health Services Research Section of the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center. So we were talking before the break about um, a couple of the components of CBT, Mm -hmm. and you had talked about this being a manualized treatment and that your research is based on this um, manualized treatment. So could you enlighten us a little bit more about what this sure. is all about? Sure, yeah. Some of the folks on our, in our team here in our, in our uh, cohort of, of folks at the Psychiatric Research Center, uh, Kim Muser and, uh, and, and some other folks, developed this treatment. It used to be called uh, CBT for PTSD, and they developed it for folks with severe mental illness and, and co-occurring uh, PTSD and, and had um, pretty, pretty amazing outcomes when, when they thought about retention and, and, and reduction in symptoms of, of uh, PTSD as well as other psychiatric uh, problems. And when we, when we learned... Can I just and we, interject because at Westbridge we were part of that. You were, research. you were. And, and we yes, I was going to talk it. about that when, when I talked about some of the stage one, is that Westbridge was one yeah. of the, the sites. There were seven sites um, that were involved with that stage one, and it was a pilot trial, so we had 53 clients go through that. And, and, and Westbridge, like I said, was one of the seven addiction uh, treatment centers that was involved and had a couple clinicians there that were trained that did a, did a really great job with the, with the curriculum. And I think um, it's really important for people to understand that this does work with folks that have yeah. severe and persistent mental illness as well. And absolutely, issues, disorders. Is that it's not always specific to PTSD. Right, right, and that's what we're finding is that really the the the, the benefits and the outcomes are more widespread than just PTSD, and we're seeing that across 
uh, for other mental health uh, issues such as, you know, depression and other anxieties, uh, severe mental illness like some of the, the uh, some of our predecessors that developed this, um, so schizophrenia and bipolar disorder and major depression, and also for addiction uh, disorders. So uh, it, it's pretty it's pretty amazing actually. Um, but you know, for the for the project we're doing now, we're we're concentrating it within the community addiction treatment setting uh, to see when it's uh, adjunctive to other traditional uh, addiction treatment, what are the outcomes. And, you know, part of the hypothesis is, is that if you do this uh, in combination with uh, community addiction treatment is that you're going to have better retention rates, uh, not only retention in the, the ICBT or integrated cognitive behavioral therapy, but also better retention within the, the, the intensive outpatient programs. Um, and also hypothesis would be is that there, there's going to be a, more of a reduction in PTSD symptoms as well as a reduction in, in substance use disorder uh, symptoms uh, based on uh, the ASI and, and urine toxicology uh, screens. So, again, that, that, is, that is what we're finding. Um, and, and maybe I don't know the best course here to go if I should, if I should go in the, the direction of maybe some of the outcomes or talk a little bit more about uh, some of the, the manual first. Well, maybe just talk a little bit more about the manual okay. and the modules. Yeah. Yep, that's great. So, so this treatment, again, it's meant to be... It's meant to be practical. It's meant to be something that clinicians in community settings are able to understand and train on and deliver with relatively, uh, you know, minimal uh, uh, ongoing training or, um, or, or fuss about, you know, memorizing a manual or, or new terminology or those kinds of things. So it's a, it's, that's, one, that's one goal here. And it's also meant to be short-term. So, you know, the, the, the goal is to help clients learn skills and really become their own therapist uh, to continue on in the world with these skills uh, and continue to reduce their symptoms. So the, the way this is developed is that it's meant to be approximately 8 to 12 sessions uh, over a course of, you know, 8 to 12 weeks, and uh, most folks are, are completing in that time frame. Uh, it's broken down into nine modules, uh, and so it is meant to be delivered in sequence of, of those modules, and, and really the primary core components are client education, so education around PTSD uh, as a diagnosis, education around, uh, uh, around their symptoms. About 50% of clients that are entering services are aware that they've had a, a, a diagnosis of PTSD and are, and are somewhat familiar with that, but 50% haven't been diagnosed or weren't aware that they were diagnosed and don't know much about uh, that, that type of disorder and, and some of the problems or, or complications it might be having for them. Um, so there's a lot of education around that and education about how that then impacts uh, somebody's functioning and may lead uh, to more addiction problems. Uh, and what have, what have you over time. And then the other core component is the mindful relaxation as a skill. It's something that's introduced to clients early in the intervention and then as an opening for every subsequent uh, therapy session so that they get a lot of practice. And then also the expectation or hope is, is that people are practicing in their daily lives a couple times a day to, to build uh, sort of experience and expertise in, in the mindful relaxation. And then the third core component is flexible thinking, which I talked about earlier, but really helping folks become more aware of 
their thinking patterns and what some of the uh, consequences are to their emotions and behaviors um, and how to help become a little bit more critical of, of that thinking to have better outcomes for their emotions and overall uh, behaviors. So that's, that's sort of the nuts and bolts. There's also uh, some work around uh, relapse prevention using the same, uh, the same model of sort of the ABCs, if you will, so looking at uh, um, activating situations and beliefs that trigger people to, to be more likely to use. Um, there's also some work around uh, what we call Emotions 101 or Affect 101 and helping folks really understand uh, their emotions and their feelings being able to label that them and, and see how it impacts their their lives. Um, it's thought that folks that have PTSD either feel too much or, or don't feel anything at all. So, uh, you know, we're trying to help folks get get in the middle there, and, and and that's part of part of what we try to do in this in this manual. Can this be done in a group setting, or is it best done individually? It can, um, and there's been a, a couple different uh, versions of of what we're doing here for the community project that I'm working on primarily right now with the clinicians to train and supervise, uh, we're doing it individual. So it's meant to be, uh, again, delivered uh, in combination with their traditional IOP treatment. Uh, but we also have a, a stage one uh, project right now, a collaboration with Brown University that we're doing with veterans coming back from Afghanistan and Iraq and working with folks at the Providence VA Medical Center. And in that setting, uh, they're starting uh, the, the curriculum, doing some of the background on PTSD and looking at symptoms and uh, getting some experience with, uh, with some of the flexible thinking idea in individual, but then they're transitioning to a group. So I think we'll have more data on, on the group setting once we collect some more numbers from that pilot trial. Um, when we're talking about training, one of the things that I'm thinking about is um, back in the late 80s and early 90s when they released the outcomes for Project Match, one of the outcomes was that if the clinician really believed that the therapy that they were using was effective, they had better outcomes. Mm-hmm. So is there any way that you screen for clinicians in terms of are some clinicians um, better suited for uh, providing this than others? That's actually an area that I'm I'm very interested in, given that I have a you know, clinical background and thinking about training and supervising clinicians. And so we have some measures that we're using uh, with some of the clinicians to collect, uh, de- you know, basic demographics, so education level and and uh, experience level trainings, as well as uh, sort of attitude, if you will, and, and interest in, in the project and in the treatment and and whatnot. So it, over time, uh, we will be doing some writing. Uh, related to that to be looking at some of the clinician uh, differences. Uh, the, the therapy sessions that they're doing are, are taped, and, and we do some, some measures around that to look at adherence and competency. So I think we'll be in a good position to look at how well, if you will, you know, clinicians are doing and also clients are doing uh, based on maybe some of those uh, uh, clinician uh, demographics and, and attitudes. Are there, is there a basic um, level of competency that clinicians have to have around treating addictions to do this, or can mm-hmm. someone who, like, basically has no um, experience treating addictions do this? That's, that's also, you know, something we're very interested in is being able to train and, <clears throat> excuse me, initiate uh, 
evidence-based best practices with real community clinicians. So we're not ruling out based on degrees or experience or, you know, having uh, clinicians submit uh, audio tapes ahead of time to, to hear skill level. So we have every everyone from a, a high school uh, level graduate, or no, excuse me, for this project we have a bachelor's level um, up to Ph.D., the most of the clinicians involved in the project are master's level, and some have a licensure in either addiction or mental health services in the state. So um, when we're talking about this, it's, it's in the research form. So is this manual isn't available to the general public, or is it? Well, it is actually. You know, while we're continuing to to develop it and tweak it based on special populations, we do have a, a free uh, manual. If, if folks are interested, uh, I can share some some details around, and and you could actually probably contact me to to get a copy of it um, while we get our website uh, up and going. But Hazelton Publishers also put out uh, a copy of this manual, um, and it has all the bells and whistles of a CD-ROM around some of the modules and uh, a DVD with with uh, some of the background and developers on it and also a, a real client and, and clinician uh, vignette of how to do some of the skills. Is so it is the out one there. That's free? Is there another one that's free? The Hazelton, the Hazelton one would, would cost some money, but we do okay. have one without bells and whistles if you don't need all of that. Um, that, that I'd be more than happy to share with folks. And, and in the, we are in the process of getting our, our website uh, a little bit more advanced and a little snazzier. So in the meantime, I'd be happy to, to share my email address and people could contact me for a copy. You want to share it now and then we'll go to break? Yeah. My, uh, my email is andrea.l.meyer, which is M-E-I-E-R, at dartmouth.edu. Um, and, again, I'd be more than happy to send a copy of that. Um, and there is some information on our website if you go to uh, dartmouth.edu and search for the Psychiatric Research Center. There's some information on there as well. And we'll be right back to hear more about the outcomes with Andrea after this commercial break. A fresh look at today's health. Voice America Health and Wellness. Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge is a nonprofit organization dedicated to supporting the recovery of families and individuals who experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. Westbridge provides integrated dual diagnosis treatment for adult men and women using evidence-based practices. Visit our site today at westbridge.org and discover that doing what works in helping individuals and families gain recovery from dual disorders is important to the staff at Westbridge Community Services. Westbridge utilizes current evidence-based practices, consensus practices, and old-fashioned common sense to provide treatment to individuals and families that experience co-occurring mental illness and substance use disorders. That's westbridge.org, family-centered recovery for co-occurring mental illness and substance abuse disorders. Healing occurs from the inside out. To awaken and activate the body's healing mechanisms, your emotions and thought patterns must be addressed and aligned with your truth. These concepts are discussed in detail on The Light Within, Awakening the Inner Healer, with host Joan Jacobs. We'll introduce you to a new way to interpret and address your body's language of symptoms and how to turn disease into a platform of profound personal growth. Tune in to The Light Within every Monday at 10 a.m. U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. 
Opinions, options, answers. You're listening to Voice America Health and Wellness. You're listening to One Hour at a Time with host Mary Woods. If you have a question for Mary or her guest, call now. The listener lines are open. The toll-free number is 1-866-472-5792. That number again is 1-866-472-5792. Now, let's get back to Mary and One Hour at a Time. Welcome back, everyone, and one hour at a time. This is Mary Woods, and I'm your host today. And we have been talking with Andrea Meyer, who is from the Department of Psychiatry at the Dartmouth Medical School in Lebanon, New Hampshire, and she is also working with Dr. Mark McGovern in the Addiction Health Services Research Section of the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center. We've been talking about post-traumatic stress disorder and co-occurring substance use disorders. And at Dartmouth, they have been working on an integrated manual with cognitive behavioral therapy for treatment of these co-occurring disorders. I'd be really interested to know um, in your in your research what has been the outcome because you're doing this inpatient or outpatient concurrently with someone who is um, in early recovery. Right. So right. we're doing um, how's that working? You know, we were having some actually some really promising evidence and outcomes, which is is exciting from our perspective. Um, I think I said earlier that this this uh, integrated cognitive behavioral therapy or, or ICBT has been through a stage one, um, and that was a four year NIDA funded grant with a small uh, pilot trial of 53 uh, patients uh, across seven uh, community addiction treatment settings and, and methadone maintenance settings. Uh, and, and the outcomes, you know, based on our hypothesis, are, have supported that. Uh, folks uh, that have, were assigned to the ICBT um, had, had much better uh, engagement over time, and specifically for uh, patients that had severe PTSD. Um, so when you think about, uh, we, we use an instrument called the CAPS or the Clinician Administered PTSD Scale. It's kind of the, the gold standard, if you will, for, for PTSD assessment. Anything over a 44 is indicating a positive or, or a PTSD diagnosis. Anything over a 65 is considered severe. Uh, so folks really in that severe range, 65 plus, uh, had, had excellent retention in ICBT. Uh, we did have a control condition, uh, w- which we call uh, individual addiction counseling. So some, some folks were assigned to that group, and it's meant to be a match uh, for addiction treatment, but uh, we needed to rule out that just the uh, additional individual uh, therapy session wasn't you know, leading to the outcomes. Um, so folks assigned to the IAC really didn't engage at all if they had that severe range. Of, of, of treatment. They didn't go to the, you know, the, by the second session they had dropped out or they didn't go to any at all. Um, also, the ICBT had a, uh, a much uh, bigger reduction in, in PTSD symptoms, um, specifically uh, in re-experiencing symptoms. Uh, and and at, we, we do a three-month and a six-month follow-up. At the three-month point, uh, only about 30% of folks Still met criteria for PTSD. Even the the average score at the at the three month follow up was a 36, uh, and so again you had to have over 44 to even be considered having mild PTSD symptoms. Um, so there's some really strong evidence in the direction of of client retention and getting people in and to complete. And really, we think of a completer when I said before engagement and retention is 
somebody that completes at least 75% of their, of their treatment, which is uh, pretty, pretty good for, for folks in addiction treatment to, to get people to attend 75% of their, their sessions. And interestingly, also, the ICBT had uh, strong outcomes on substance use symptoms as well, and we measure that based on the Addiction Severity Index or the ASI and something we call a timeline follow-back, which is standard for for research trials and also uh, urine toxicology tests. It had equivalent uh, reduction in, in substance use disorder symptoms as the addiction treatment, as the IAC, which is which is curious um, that, and pretty fascinating that it, it had that outcome. We thought it we, we thought it would be comparable, but it's, it's very exciting to see. Um, and we, we saw too that you had asked before about community clinicians being able to deliver and and this material and, and this intervention. And what we found from that first stage also is that folks, you know, you know, Westbridge too. There was a couple clinicians involved and, and did a great job. The clinicians were at an excellent level when we think about adherence and competency to the intervention. So we we found that yes, indeed, community clinicians can deliver this and can deliver it effectively. Um, so it's it's pretty fascinating when you when you look at the 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 data so far. And for this second stage, I mean, and this is again another four year larger trial. Now we're looking to recruit 228 uh, patients over time, and we're about. 10 months in, and we already have randomized 115, so we're kind of out the gates and running, and we've started preliminary looking at some of the data, and we're seeing similar trends. So I think it's helped keep up the enthusiasm for the clinicians and for the folks involved that, yes, this is, this is exciting, and this is, this, is, this is really working for folks. And um, I don't know, do I have time to share a, a, quick, uh, a quick, quick case example? You do. To highlight some of that, maybe? For the stage two, we had a, a, a woman that was uh, assigned, to, randomized to the ICBT from one of the community uh, community settings, and this is a woman that had uh, experienced many traumas over time. She had had, uh, I think, nine um, from some childhood sexual assaults and physical assaults to adult physical assaults, some, some accidents, but her primary trauma was 9-11. Um, she was actually in the towers uh, when oh when the when the plane got hit. Um, she didn't leave her house for two years afterwards. She didn't leave her apartment in New York City. Um, she had drank before. Uh, she had drank before the the events, but it got a lot worse when she was holed up in her her apartment. And uh, she had had some some alcohol counseling and um, was aware that you know maybe maybe some of this had to do with PTSD, but was was never really offered a, a good a good course, I guess, of of integrated treatment at, at any of the settings she had gone to. So this this woman was again in one of the community uh, programs and and was screened and, and flagged as somebody that w- that met criteria for PTSD. And at her baseline, at her first assessment, she she scored an 83. So that's that's severe. That you know we're over the 65 mark. We're we're at a severe range of PTSD. And she's somebody that she she engaged. She went to every appointment. She she completed her her IOP. And this is somebody that was in jeopardy. She had a, she had a lot on her plate. Uh, you know, kids kids were in jeopardy of getting taken away, and um, and she had a lot of uh, potential stressors or, or barriers that may have gotten in the way of her course of treatment. But but she really aligned with the treatment and said, "I wanted help. I want help. I haven't had help for PTSD." 
along the way and, and, and all of this that, that's going on for me. Uh, so she completed. Uh, she completed. And uh, at her three-month follow-up, so, so three months, which is right around the time she finished her treatment with the clinician, she, again, they go through the same battery of, of assessments. And her, her CAPS, her, 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 her assessment score was at a 19. So we went, she went from an eight, 83 to a 19. Wow. Uh, and, again, that's well below the 44 mark. Any drop of 15 points is considered significant. So, you know, this is... This is over 60 points. Um, so that was, you know, pretty amazing. So, so then you wonder, okay, well, what happens over time? You know, she's, she's phasing out of I, her IOP, her addiction treatment. She's, she's now done with the CBT. Then what? You know, what, what happens once the short-term treatment's over? And so we do follow folks at six months as well to do, again, the same, the same series and batteries of tests to see how, how they're doing. And she continued to drop. She was at a 14. Wow. Uh, so... You know, at the end of her treatment, she no longer met criteria for PTSD. And again, three months later, she was continuing to abstain from substance use and continued to not meet criteria for PTSD. So a success story, I would say, and somebody that's, you know, continued to, to be in touch with our team and, and been very grateful for the services she's received. But, you know, we've, we've seen this with other folks as well. That's just one example that especially for folks that are in that severe range of PTSD have had pretty significant outcomes on their trauma, their PTSD diagnosis, their substance use uh, disorder symptoms and severity, retention and treatment, whether they complete, whether they relapse during the course of treatment. Um, there's much, much less likelihood that that will happen if they're engaged in both. So... Again, that's just one, one case to, to highlight some of, some of the work that's happening and, and some of the outcomes uh, that, that we're finding thus far. And, and we'll have more. Again, we're recruiting 228 for this second stage, and that's, you know, the magic number that the statisticians say that we need. So we'll have a lot more uh, data to share with folks, I think, in the coming year. Where are you recruiting from? So this, this project for the Stage 2, we have seven uh, community uh, addiction treatment centers um, in the state of Vermont in New Hampshire. Okay. And, um, so if anybody's listening and they are in the state of Vermont or New Hampshire, <laughs> they think great. they may be a candidate for this or yes, yes. they should contact you, Andrea? Yeah, they can they can contact me and I shared my email and I could share some other contacts or they can actually directly contact the site um, and some of the sites around the state are uh, the Dartmouth Hitchcock Medical Center Addiction Treatment Program and Lebanon uh, or Lebanon New Hampshire excuse me or HCRS in Springfield Vermont uh, Brattleboro Retreat in Brattleboro Vermont uh, Burlington we have the Howard Center uh, that's Burlington Vermont. We have Rutland Evergreen Services in Rutland, Vermont, and we have uh, Central Vermont Substance Abuse Services in Barrie, Vermont, and finally, we have Quitting Time, which is part of the Clara Martin Center in Wilder, Vermont. And if people are listening and they would like um, a really well-done toolkit for integrated cognitive behavioral therapy, you can get it at the Hazelton website, which is hazelton.org. And as you said, Andrea, it has um, has a, a CD with a video, right? 
Yeah, it has a CD with a video with some of the some of the developers and background and, and some actual case examples of how to deliver the mindful relaxation and flexible thinking uh, uh, modules that are in there. It has all of uh, the background and what we call the clinician uh, manual, so what clinicians can use to go through all the modules and kind of the goals and what to have for each therapy session. And then also that all of the handouts, because each uh, client that gets the treatment has their own uh, what we call Called client workbook. So they have a series of handouts and worksheets that they use not only in session but as their real-life practice between therapy appointments. So it has all the bells and whistles and, and all of the, the tools right in that Hazleton version. Um, but again, if somebody doesn't mind so much about the, the, the bells and whistles, I'm more than happy to share some of the PDFs we have here at the PRC. And could you just give your email out once more? Sure. It is uh, andrea.l. Dot Meyer, which is M-E-I-E-R, at dartmouth.edu. Thank you so much for being a guest today. This has been very informative, and, I, and it's very hopeful that, um, that people can get better. Um, and this is my bias about having to be re-traumatized again. Mm. I, I think that's really exciting. And there is a wave. There is a wave trying to look at other interventions and, and tools that aren't exposure-based um, because of that, because of the fear of kind of re, re-traumatizing and, and losing clients before they're even in the door, um, and especially based on, you know, just the, just the negative uh, outcomes of, of what can happen to folks as far as uh, frequent relapse and um, kind of the kind of what I call the revolving door of in and out of services and all the problems it causes with, with the legal system and, and relationships and, and, and child, and child uh, DCF cases and, and what have you. So, again, there's, there's such a need, and uh, we're, we're continuing to look at this and, and uh, try to test it in our community. Well, thank you, and thank everybody at the uh, Addiction Health Services Research Section at the Dartmouth Psychiatric Research Center because you guys are doing great work, and um, we certainly appreciate it. So thank you. Thank you you so much for your time. We appreciate it as well. And um, have a great week, everyone. I hope you enjoy this first week of October, and um, we'll be talking to you next week. We appreciate you joining us today for One Hour at a Time. Successful recovery from a substance abuse problem or mental illness depends on education and support of loved ones. Thank you for being that support system. Be sure to tune in next week for another hour of education and compassion. One hour at a time. We'll see you next week.